0: Creative Collisions with Second Home.
1: Hello and welcome to Creative Collisions, a new podcast from Second Home, a social business dedicated to promoting creativity and entrepreneurship in cities around the world.
0: This episode, we return with the discussion between the iconic art curator and artistic director of Serpentine Galleries, Hans Ulrich Oberst, and two brilliant artists, Lean Hirschman, artist, filmmaker, and early pioneer of new media artworks, and Sumaya Valley, architect, principal of Counter Space Studio, and the youngest ever to be commissioned for the Serpentine Pavilion, to discuss his new book, 140 Artists' Ideas for Planet Earth. Through drawings, thought experiments, recipes, instructions, gardening ideas, insurgences, and personal revolutions, 140 artists came together for a publication dedicated to the environment and the climate emergency. Lynn and Sumaya discussed their contributions and share new imaginative ways for us to engage with the climate emergency in our daily lives, in our homes, our communities, as well as public spaces.
2: Thank you so very much to Second Home and of course, all my thanks to Lynn and uh, to Sumaya for joining us uh, tonight. We could not be more grateful to have you with us here in the program tonight on this very special occasion, actually, uh, for the second home launch of our subtime Penguin Press publication. Uh, actually, uh, remember nature, 140 artist ideas for planet Earth, which is a back-to-Earth project. Um, A new long-term project dedicated to the environment and the climate uh, emergency. Uh, We invited through drawings, actually thought experiments, recipes, also DIY uh, instructions, gardening ideas, insurgencies, and also very personal revolutions. 140 artists, scientists, architects, filmmakers, uh, and many more to actually come together to create a DIY guide on how to shape a more ecological, a more equitable future. This book is the result. It's the first result of uh, volume one of something which hopefully uh, will continue. Uh, it um, uh, is a book which actually uh, uh, can really be used. It's a book ad uzum, as Piotr Klosowski always said when he wrote books, uh, uh, books ad Uzum, And uh, uh, it's, of course, as I mentioned, part of Back to Earth and Back to Earth is very much a long-term project of uh, uh, the Serpentine, a long-term project which has already begun more than two years ago online, uh, where we invited artists to both uh, physically and also virtually create uh, campaigns, uh, environmental campaigns. Um, it's very inspired by um, actually Roman kachannik's book uh, how to be a good ancestor uh, which uh, is kachannik's wonderful book to actually show us that we need to liberate the world from short-termism and of course very often event culture if it's exhibitions or also other formats in the art world have to do with more short-term kind of deadlines and we feel that it's important to actually rethink about longer term projects not to have only exhibitions last longer but to actually go maybe, completely beyond the time frame of exhibitions, And so Back to Earth manifests itself through all the Serpentine programs, sharing its resources to amplify ongoing projects or campaigns. And uh, it's very much um, a project, yeah, about, about change. It's a very collective project. So Itina Korek, our CEO, and myself as the Artistic Director of the Serpentine, I'm incredibly grateful to the Back to Earth team, to Rebecca Lewin, Lucia Pietro Justi, Joe Verstro and Costa Sazinopoulos, who actually uh, started this project together with us and special thanks go to costas with whom we've uh, edited this uh this book it's now my immense pleasure to actually uh, introduce two of the great protagonists of the uh, uh remember nature book Lynn Hirschman, Leeson, and sumaya valley uh two extraordinary artists and architects uh Lynn is an American artist and filmmaker uh, whose work has many, many dimensions, exploring the relationship between humans and technology, identity, surveillance, and the use of media as a tool for empowerment against censorship and against political uh, repression. In order to do so, Lynn works in photography, in video, in film, in performance, in AI, in bio art, installation, interactive media, and also. Uh, net-based uh, media art. I have seen for the first time actually a retrospective of Lynn's work at ZKM in, in Karlsruhe, but there have been so many more exhibitions uh, since. And what we also can say is that Lynn has anticipated so many of the urgent topics of the urgent matters in our world uh, through her art so early on. If we think about uh, surveillance capitalism appears first we can say in Lynn hirschman Leeson's work already many years ago, and of course environmental concerns are also there very, very early in this great pioneering work. So Lynn, we are really, really grateful to have you with us uh, tonight. We are also very, very grateful to Sumaya Valley uh, to be with us. Sumaya is an architect uh, based primarily in South Africa, as of lately also in London. Between London and South Africa, I, can, I think we can say now, between geographies and uh, the co-director and co-founder of Counterspace in Joburg, uh, the work of Counterspace and of Sumaya, emerges really from research and interdisciplinary art-based projects, undertaking architectural projects, but also community engagement, exhibition and installation, uh, and also urban research and uh, design and how uh, Sumaya brings this all together, we could experience in such a wonderful way throughout the two-year pavilion project, which came to fruition uh, actually uh, at, um, uh, at the time, which brought together very much uh, the architectural aspect, the community engagement, and for the first time, brought uh, the, the pavilion, not only to Kensington Gardens, but also into uh, many different neighborhoods of London through these uh, through these islands. And so, so Maya, also so grateful that you are with us and uh, a very warm welcome to to both of you. And I wanted to actually begin um, with, uh, before we talk about the book and your wonderful contributions to the book, um, with a question to um, to Lynn, because I've just been watching a clip again online, uh, Are We Good Ancestors?, uh, where you very much, you know, bring up this uh, Roman Kachani question of uh, uh, the long uh, duration. Uh, and of course, that has also to do with the fact that if we want to address the climate emergency, we, we need to go beyond the fear of pulling knowledge. We need to bring all the disciplines together. Uh, we need to particularly go between this divide between uh, science on the one hand and then on the other hand, humanities. I mean, C.P. Snow lamented these, these sort of two cultural divide and said we need to kind of bridge it and that's something, uh, Lin, you have been doing for such a long time. So I wanted to ask you to tell us a little bit about uh, are we good ancestors? How can we get out of this short-termism in the current moment and how to bring all the disciplines together? How can we go beyond the fear of pulling knowledge, for, which is so urgent?
3: I, I think that that having disciplines is really restrictive. I think uh, in my, because I'm not trained in anything, it gives me a great advantage to not know what I'm supposed to do because uh, you, know, you just do what's required. But I think we're at a point now in time where we do have to collaborate and work together and work together with all kinds of people and particularly scientists and understand that we can together make changes that we can't make individually. So I've been very fortunate in the last years to be able to, um, to have the real privilege of working with scientists from uh, Novartis, from Thom- Thomas Huber, uh, in, in creating an antibody that is still being used, actually used, and uh, you know having Novartis say they hit the, hit the jackpot because they weren't able to do this on their own. And the same thing with, with Harvard, who said that uh, with the Weiss Institute, that they said that they were able to uh Create this system of pulsating plastic because of the questions, you know, that we were asking together. So, so I think it's really a matter of broadening your perspective and uh, and uh, looking for the unintended answers uh, to specific problems that will create a more sustainable planet.
2: Thank you, Lynn, and that, of course, brings us also to Sumaya because Sumaya, in your practice. Uh, As an architect and urbanist, you very much also uh, go beyond the fear of pooling knowledge, as we could see this summer in so many different ways. Can you tell us a little bit about that and also how to liberate uh, uh, the world from short-termism?
1: Thanks so much, hans Ulrich, for the question. I I think... um, Absolutely. We need to be liberated from short-termism. And I think you put it so beautifully and poetically. In the last conversation we had where you talked about the long durée, um, which I very much believe in, in in this project of being able to work at many different durations and speeds and paces. Um, And I think that involves not only looking at our future, but also looking deeply at our pasts. Um, in as many in as many ways as we can, and I think um, the other thing about that that's the the, the other um, how do we say? The other aspect about um, thinking through working in durational ways is also in thinking through working societally and thinking about our practices as societal structures. Uh, and And this touches um, very much on my contribution in the book as well, and also in how we worked on the pavilion together and how we thought about things that happen at many different different scales and in many different um, physical scales, but also time scales. Um, and I, I think i'm I'm very inspired by this idea of societal thinking in lots of different forms of practice in architectural practice but also in thinking about the body as a society in itself and as an ecosystem in itself. And I think that idea ripples in, in many different ways, this idea of interdependencies between ourselves and other beings and other bodies um, and other voices, past, present and future. And I think that that's something that needs to be reflected more deeply in many of our professions.
2: Thank you so much. and. Uh so when you mentioned the contribution to the book, you both contributed uh, to Remember Nature, 140 Artists' Ideas for Planet Earth, a Serpentine Penguin Books collaboration. And maybe I want to bring it back to Lynn first. Lynn, your contribution mentions a Water Woman, which um, is uh, also an ongoing body of work in your practice. Um, I want to ask you, what do uh, the water women symbolize? Uh, for you, can you tell us a little bit about about
0: yeah. uh,
2: the wonderful the wonderful text you you contributed to um, to the book? I'm trying to open it here. It's not only a text; it's also um, an image, and of course, it has to do with transitioning plastic and contaminants out of water. Uh, mm-hmm. So, in a way, it has to do with uh, in a way uh, eliminating also um, uh, things from water which are which are polluting. Yeah.
3: Um, <laughs> yeah, well, I started, you know, really in the 70s to do this simultaneous to a project I was doing about an imitation person uh, who interacted with reality. And I realized, you know, the time... Uh, and our construction of water was a transience, and that um, I wanted to incorporate into a performance the idea of of time and the relevance of it. The idea of working with with these water drop women then changed around 2012 to starting to de- to deal with pollution and how pollution has entered the time frame of something that we uh at that time weren't able to to do anything about and eventually um uh I, it was something i wanted to, to when I learned about the programming of the genome and the importance of of how the planet would react to uh the scientific changes that we needed to make, I was able to uh with with thomas's help co- and, co- and collaboration uh work with the Weiss institute in actually creating helping to create a system that eliminated uh, Toxins from water by doing it with water pulsations, um, and it was kind of like in the metro. I mentioned in the book the the idea of metropolis, you know, where where the pulses go through the robot, and uh, you know, to 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 uh, uh, to, uh, to to make that change. And I find that the planet really wants to cure itself, and simultaneous to our. Working on something that would cha- actually change and and eliminate plastic, we found accidentally that that the planet, nature had created these something called a wax worm that actually likes plastic. So they are they eat them. They eat it. The, these systems didn't weren't didn't weren't didn't exist before. But nature created something to help clear out the. Uh, back, uh, unhealthy bacteria and toxins from their environment. So I think we have to work together, not only with each other, with with scientists and, and people from different fields, but really with the planet and uh, let it heal as we heal ourselves as well.
2: And you say in this text that um, it's about training smart bacteria and microbes to evolve, to consume, actually to dissolve plastic from uh, from water. It's also about creating fountains from these inverted water women in which hands become figures to actually emit purified drinking water. Uh, and you say that in an embedded screen reveal through color the current water toxicity level. So there are many different aspects here in this DIY piece. So it's on the one hand Collaborating with bacteria by training them and with microbes. It's on the other hand creating an interactive sort of interface, uh, uh, fountains from inverted water women. And last but not least, it's also a screen which actually makes visible the, the data, no? So the toxicity level, the whole idea of power clay that art can make the invisible visible. Can you talk a little bit about these different strata of the piece?
3: Yeah, well, uh, when we put we put this as an exhibition in two places, uh, one was in Guangzhou and the other was at the New Museum, and what we were able to accomplish was to take the polluted water from from New York rivers and use it in this system, so that you could actually see through the Water Woman and through LED lights that pulsated on it. Uh, Showing when the water dissolved and became clear how the colors changed within the woman so that she also became clear of the toxicity of, of, uh, of the poison that she was uh, in, in, you know, that we're all in without really understanding that. So you were able to see the exhibition and see the the process of it being made in in real time. And uh, they, they have now um, patented this, you know, just like they did with, with Navartis. And so this will become more accessible, which is what it's all about, is making, making something that works this quickly to clear water and depollute it uh, available on a larger scale. Now also,
2: uh, of course, uh, the whole idea of these DIY pieces and remember nature and 140 artists' ideas of planet Earth kind of grows out of do it. Uh, and Do It is an exhibition which we started in, uh, <laughs> in the early 90s, as you know, and uh, has been evolving ever since, which is basically um, uh, constituted by artists' instruction pieces and how-to manuals. Um, and uh, and it's in a way also a very sustainable exhibition because, of course, I mean, it has never stopped since 1991. So I've always been Do It versions around with many different artists. Whenever a Do It version happened, we invited local artists to join. And... Uh, there's no travel involved because it's just a local interpretation of the artist's instruction. Um, and uh, it's ever evolving, ever growing. And of course, it's not the first time, Lin, that you have worked with instructions in your mm-hmm. art. Uh, so I wanted to ask you a little bit to tell us about the role of, how, of DIY, of instructions, of how-to mm-hmm. manuals. And there comes sorts of different ways how to use instructions in the work. I mean, some conceptual artists use them also, uh, yeah, I mean, to kind of manifest sort of the conceptuality of the work. And then in Fluxus, it was kind of an open score. There were lots of different ways how they were used. I mean, with some artists, it's very open and there cannot really be a wrong interpretation. Um, I remember Sol Levit once told me that he really believes that somebody needs to kind of follow how the instructions executed. For him, that was very important. For Alison Knowles, it isn't important at all. Uh, make a salad, it's always the piece no no matter how we make the salad. So I wanted to see a little bit how you relate to this long history of instruction because of course there have always been also been exhibitions. I mean Lucy Lippard, a long time before do it, did a show in the late 60s, early 70s with his instructions on postcards that was a big inspiration for us.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh, well, a lot, a lot of the work that I started to do very, you know, early in the sixties and seventies was about interactivity and recognizing that we were cyborgs. The word cyborg was invented in nineteen sixty, and it was invented by NASA. So the cyborg is now sixty-one years old, and but, but we didn't know it. We didn't know that we were becoming cyborgs, and we didn't know that we could actually interact with art. And so people needed. Needed to be given permission. I, I remember that the Bruce Conner once did a piece called "Please Touch," and the museum wouldn't let anybody touch what he wanted them to touch. And so, the idea of of actually touching and interacting with the piece and changing the flow of of, of the movement in a piece was a foreign substance. So people needed some sort of a, a latch to ha- uh, to hang onto and to give them that kind of a uh, vehicle for actually participating in the reconstruction of an art artwork. So in, in those cases, it was really vital to let people know that they were part of the work itself.
2: And can you give a few examples, one or two examples of such early works you did well where that played a role?
3: I I didn't understand.
2: Uh, yeah, sorry. I, could you give one or two examples of like of your own work where you used such instructions in terms of a feedback loop? Um, yeah.
3: Well, for instance, I did. Uh uh, Lorna, you know, Lorna was a, a, an interactive work done in the late '70s, where you actually sat in, a, in in the environment of a room that was on a video screen that was a replica of it, and that you would actually use your remote in order to um, to change the change the dynamic of what the character did, and therefore cause a connection, so that you were virtually the character on the screen and going back and forth, you know, kind of like a like like a double helix between the reality and the virtual world. But there were constant reminders on the screen telling you what to do and that the how the remote should be used. And that that also happened, you know, with with a work Called deep contact, where you actually had to touch it, where the character on the screen was constantly telling you to touch touch parts of her body, and that would uh, open the location of the of the narrative. And then, still later in the um, uh, in in the late nineties, uh, when we created the first um, AI bot, Agent Ruby. Uh, where people were did not know that they could talk to a screen and have it answer them and have a real conversation with with something that that was virtual. So all of these, every time there's a new technology, people need need to be instructed and, and given permission um, to react to it because I think that they're frightened by um, by that participation because the training is for disciplines and, and to not trespass those um, those areas that are. Actually porous, and to you know to broaden what what the collaboration could be.
2: Thank you so much, and Of course, this idea of uh, actually please touch of um, of Bruce Connell brings us also, Sumaya, so to the way you know you your architecture um, uh, and your projects, um, your urban projects work, um, because these are very much projects which are actually given uh, to the community. Uh, to interact with very often in a very non-uh prescriptive way. And uh you've written this wonderful instruction actually for the book. Uh it's called Feel the Shifting Edges. And that's of course also what you did with your pavilion, the shifting edges of the of the pavilion, what you did with your fragments. Uh can you tell us a little bit about your instruction for for the book for the 140 Artist Ideas for Planet Earth? And then maybe you know, following on. Lynn's beautiful remarks—you uh, know how you see that in relation to to architecture. That whole idea also of of participation.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much again, Hans Ulrich, um, for that reflection. I think the the when I wrote the instruction for the book, I was working on on several things. The first thing, of course, that I was working on at the time was the pavilion, and very rightly, as you said, this idea of feeling the shifting edges between. Past, present and future, as I mentioned, became really important for the pavilion, but also feeling the shifting edges of the park, um, of Kensington Gardens and and how how that that edge could be broadened and deepened so that the pavilion also started to touch in many different ways and in many different realms, other neighbourhoods in London, um, physically and also programmatically. And then the other thing I was working on was also um, a contribution for the Back to Earth Symposium um, for the Shape of the Circle, the Mind of a Fish, and um, my contribution there was called Ingesting Architectures, and it was a reflection on toxicity and dust and um, air particles and also the relations and entanglements between social justice, um, racial injustices and the environment, Um, and on the one hand, I think thinking about the difficulties in how we navigate and negotiate these entanglements, but I think there's also, and the instruction is a reflection on this, something positive to be uh, said for thinking about everything as absolutely related and entangled. Uh, and so this idea of field of shifting edges is, um, I think, if we consider... African ways of being, also Islamic, many Islamic ways of being. There is this idea that uh, everything is blurred and everything is fractal and um, everything resonates uh, from a singular cell out into the universe. Um, And so maybe I'll read the piece now. (laughs) Um, It says, feel the shifting edges. Go for a walk barefoot. Walk so gently that your feet hear the histories of the ground beneath them. Inhale. Consider where the environment ends and you begin. Walk that line. Where is it? On your skin, in your mouth, in your lungs, in your blood? Exhale. Is that CO2 you? Breathe a trace of condensation on a glass surface. Touch it. Is it a part of you or of the world? Listen to the silences, absences, presences. Read the deep fault lines of geology and control. Ingest the atmospheric consequences of another era. Feel other entities, other places, and other times. Life forms defy boundaries at every level. Feel the shifting edges of yourself. Um, And just to maybe uh, conclude what the piece is about, I think that there's value in thinking about things that are interconnected on a cellular level, um, in thinking about disciplines that are interconnected and that blur each other. Um, And there's also some some logic that is diasporic in this world to shift the edges and to think of of territory differently. Um, and, And I think all of those reflections and all those things that I was working on at the time found their ways into the instruction. Thank you so
2: much. Uh, now uh, another thing I was thinking is, because obviously this idea of a book as an exhibition, right? Because this book for Penguin is in a way a portable exhibition. It's a mobile exhibition. Is of course also inspired by Edouard Glissant's idea that we need to go with art outside the museum, that we need to find other forms of distribution, no other forms of dissemination, um, other forms of engagement, actually. And it's interesting in a way that for for many people, you know, even if we make the museum very accessible, democratize the museum, have free admission, there are still people who think the museum is not for them, which means we need to find other ways of actually bringing art into society. And that's, of course, interesting. If you look what happened with the Warburg Plan uh, in in the in the 1930s, you know, that, that, that's all, a whole sort of research instead of public art art was brought as murals to post offices all over the US and in even very uh, remote areas, art centers, you know, were being installed so that people would have contact zones with art where otherwise that would never have been uh, possible. And it seems, of course, important also for our time to find ways how art can go into society. And um, there are many different examples for that. Uh, uh, One is certainly the the vision or the idea of John Latham and Barbara Stevini when they in the 1960s started this idea in England of the artist placement group no APG and the idea was actually that artists would literally um, uh, go outside the art world and would actually spend time in in companies in governments uh, that maybe every brand and every you know corporation and every government would have an artist in residence or even better so an artist on the board. And of course, there have been, I mean, Lynn, when you began, it was the time of the experiments in art and technology. That was Billy Kluwer's idea of bringing artists into Bell Laboratories. So there have been a lot of, you know, also in the U.S. and in Asia and in Africa and all continents have been endeavors and initiatives of bringing art into society. Uh, uh, But it's interesting that um, uh, today, I think, this idea is still in big parts an unrealized project. And uh, the moment seems very good to revisit this idea because we live in a situation, particularly because of the climate emergency, but also because of the post-COVID situation. Uh, so many companies, uh, structures, co- corporations have to pivot. They have to radically reinvent themselves. And uh, who does that better than artists? So I think the moment has come really for this idea of Latham and Stavini to be introduced in a in a planetary way or on a planetary scale. And I just wanted to hear you both a little bit about that. First of all, how you feel about this idea today, and also maybe to hear some examples from the past where you have actually experienced that plasma, this idea of going you know outside the art world into society.
3: Well, in in the early seventies, I, I did a project um, called the Floating Museum. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, okay. and and uh, what that project did was uh, was bring about 300 artists together to work outside of museum structures because museums at that time were so restricted in what they would show. You know, they wouldn't show comic artists, they wouldn't show women, they wouldn't show performance art. So that was what the impetus was. So we found other places to do the work. And one particular memorable one that that I did was, was in San Quentin prison where they had all these walls and nothing on them. And prisoners who wanted to learn how to do art. So we brought a master muralist in to teach them. And uh, for 20 years, murals were made inside that prison. Now there was no precedent before that. There was no such thing as public art. But it's a matter, I think, of just being inventive because I think that most places uh and companies are really receptive to ideas to to make change where they are. So I and and our are most times. Very happy to have an artist come to them with an idea for change. Um, I had just finished working as project director, uh, associate project director for the Christos Running Fence, and that was really an inspiration for me uh, of how you do large-scale projects outside with farmers and ecologists and engineers and make it all work together. Prior to that, because I had done a work with sound in the late, uh, in late 60s, early 70s, that was supposed to be in a museum and the work was closed down, I started working in hotel rooms um, because I was constantly told that what I was doing wasn't art because nobody worked with, with sound. Nobody did those kind of things. So therefore it didn't fit into the history of what they thought art was. So working in hotel rooms or in store windows or in non-traditional spaces Gave rise to a much broader audience and and a greater sense of of uh, um, of connection by just finding a place that that uh, that it more naturally would would fit. I remember I did one project with Michael Asher and he changed he changed the uh, stairways in front of a needlepoint shop so that you had to walk a half an inch higher when you went up the steps and you saw the whole landscape that was there much differently. And that kind of thing is looking at what, what's there and what, looking at how you can change the perception very subtly. Thank
2: you, Lane. And Sumaya?
1: Um, I couldn't agree more with the APG idea. I think we need it now more than ever, as you said, Hans Ulrich. Um, and on a planetary scale, absolutely. I think we need to think about how we bring other disciplines into all of our thinking, so that we also have different entry points into all the questions that are facing us. Um, I, I think in my own in my own practice, I guess I've always worked to bring to bring art and art practice and and architecture into the broader realm and to think about it on a systemic level, um, as you know, to think about how. Bodies function as societies, and who the players in that realm are, and how do we start to bring in other voices into the conversation, and and how do we bring as many players as possible to the table so that we start to think about the question differently or ask different questions, even. Um, but I think there's something, and I'm just reflecting on on the beginning of what Lynn said about working outside of in institutions, as much as we need to. Um, Think about how artists work outside of institutions. We also need to think about how institutions work differently. And this is something that you told me, Hans Ulrich, that it's it's so important that we have artists um, on the boards and in the in in the decision making structures of of art institutions. And I, I think that that's also something that needs to be highlighted more, not just. Um, What we consider as traditional artists, but lots of other forms of thinkers, um, ecologists, um, people who are really working as futurists to tackle the big questions that we have at stake. Um, Because I think, of course, art functions within an economy, but also art practice does the work of asking really pertinent questions, and we need to work somehow to make sure that that's always foregrounded. So I think having, yes, having um, artists in working outside of institutions is really important, but also thinking about artists working inside of institutions through processes of transformation and reform for institutions from the inside out is as important. But Thank in a way, you very much.
2: Thank yes. you, Sophia. Uh, and our next question I had for both of you is, uh, as i mentioned, you know, of course, another possibility besides APG uh, is, of course, this idea of public art. You no, know? is to basically um, art, as Mousilvan said, can appear where we expect it least. And, of course, the Mexican muralists were a great inspiration for uh, the whole Roosevelt uh, years for the public art kind of projects then. Um Uh, I mean, today it could clearly go beyond murals. There's so many new ways of how also digital art can actually become public art. Uh, It's particularly also fascinating, I think, if we think about this whole idea now with AI and, you know, basically uh, liberating moving image from the loop, no? So that all of a sudden um, uh, we have actually uh, works with moving image which are never repeating. They're never twice the same. They are... They're always evolving, changing. I mean, it could be fascinating to have such works more in public space. And whenever we pass by them in the railway station or whatever, we'd see uh, a new stage of that work. And, and I think in a way, a lot of artists right now are interested again, uh, after having focused so much on exhibitions to think more about this idea of public art. And of course, the fragments, uh, Sumaya, so uh, have been an example for that, a recent example. Uh, how actually um, um, art can somehow magnetize or also uh, make public existing space in a, in a different way. But I wanted to begin with Lynn and ask you, Lynn, a little bit about your, maybe your work, your experience outside the exhibition space with public art commissions, with public art, and to give us maybe a few examples of realized or unrealized projects. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah most of them weren't commissions <laughs> most most of these uh works were just things that i i felt had to be done and gotcha. just initiated ways in in order to do them so whether it was the window projects which were at a number of of uh storefronts um were i changed the windows to to make them about uh about the history of the past or the future or about uh, poverty or who gets credit those kinds of things um just seem to be urgent but i've been thinking lately about you know the, our 60 year old cyborg and, and even ai that these these technologies have all been bred by by the war for AI, first happened with the Enigma machine in World War II, and and then moved, you know, in, into the, the creation of cyborgs with NASA, and then surveillance uh, happened with with DARPA and Palantir, and the idea of predictive policing moved out into uh, out of the Iraq War, and how the the assault and surveillance elements have all come from a root of of disconnection and conflict and i think one thing that we need to be aware of is is changing and understanding and recognizing what the root came from and doing something that that more than neutralizes those possibilities so that we can uh, create possibilities for awareness of and change for uh for the Discriminative use of digital technology and uh, how it, it targets very often unsuspecting people who aren't aware that that their lives are being co-opted by the technology that's um, that's tracking them. Now that um, now that technology has created individuals uh, who are commodities and perhaps and have replaced oil with the commodification of their own identity.
2: Can you give us a few more examples? Because I'm sure there are so many more where, where you did artworks outside the circuit of exhibitions. I the windows are great examples.
3: Um, <laughs> well, everything that I've done, you know, from the creation of Lorna or or the creation of interactive uh, technology or the touch screen or... AI chatbots, all of those were done before anybody knew what they were. And in fact, sometimes they took 35 years or so to even be seen. For instance, you know, when I did the breathing machines, this was in the 60s. And and I didn't know that nobody else had ever used sound. Uh, And I thought everybody did. And because there was no history in it, I couldn't show it. As I say, you know, from when they were made in sixty-six until nineteen uh, until two thousand and fourteen, once was when they were first shown. So most of what I I have done in my whole practice has been from looking at the urgency of a need to do something that usually went beyond a boundary and had no name and had no uh, no apparent history, and then later in time uh, saw saw a way of, of working finally into the art world, which was the last place it went, (laughs) in most cases.
2: (laughs) Great answer. So, Maya, your public works, works in the public sphere. Um, I mean, it's not only the pavilion. You've also already, uh, a lot in your practice in South Africa, experimented with installations in public space.
1: Yes. um, I think similarly to Len hans ulrich everything that I have worked on has a has a public subconscious or, or undertone um, and a desire I think also to blur to blur boundaries and Johannesburg of course um, has a particular legacy and inheritance of segregation and you know are, there's, there's a condition of in Joburg where everything is is very walled and very fortified and so I found that if I look at it reflectively, most of my projects are a comment on this wall condition, or or have a desire to break that down in in some way. Um, if I think of examples, there's a there's a project I worked on quite early on called Backstory, where we occupied a boiler room shop front space that was really really tiny. I think it was probably about a meter wide. Um, But everything that happened from that space was about how it spilled over into the alleyway and onto the street. So it was used as a space to house stacks of chairs and the chairs, of course, when the space was open, spilled out onto the sidewalk and and into the alleyway. We also used it um, to project from. So there were often times where we set up um, mobile uh, film screenings using the space as a as a core, but then allowing allowing its contents to spill out onto the street. It also you became useful as a a place to convene people around the time of the FISMA's fall movement. For example, it became a very active um, home for students to, um, to 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 rest and use, but also to uh, to use for for mapping concerns around the time of the Me Too movement. uh, We had projects um, around women's safety or women in the city. And then um, again, I'm I'm reminded just because I talked a little bit about Fees Fall protests. I worked on a proposal where I was asked to uh, reconsider the campus edge at the university, which is a very, very thick concrete wall condition. Um, And the project involved softening that boundary by working to make it more porous. So it still appeared very much as a concrete wall, but with indentations um, and porous areas that functioned as uh, dual-facing services. So spaces where students could buy a coffee from the inside or the outside or... um, Purchase cell phone, we call it airtime in South Africa, top up essentially. Um, Things that students would need to use overnight. Also, you know, we also considered that they could become pop up libraries or places for student artworks to be shown and so on. And I think beyond having a function that's useful, also the presence of bodies, the presence of light starts to become a public offering on the street and starts to have an impact on how the street is perceived and how people are allowed to move through it and walk through it daytime and nighttime. And then, of course, you mentioned the pavilion, and I think that same logic of um, blurring the boundaries is also in the pavilion logic, or this diasporic desire to move beyond um, a central, centralized uh, core Um, in that the pavilion also exists in these five fragments around London and each of them have a very particular function, also no function, as you mentioned. So they're designed uh, with communities and designed in collaboration with the partner institutions so that they function as a stage set or a podium um, or a radio station hub. But beyond that, they also start to become signifiers of collaborations between the serpentine and these partner institutions. And I think those go beyond the life of, of the design function.
2: Thank you both so, so much. And I think that, uh, covers really most of my questions. I have maybe one or two last questions. Uh, one is in, in the book, uh, remember nature 140 artists ideas for planet earth. We also have a text actually, uh, an instruction piece by Kim Stanley Robinson. Uh, And of course, Kim Stanley Robinson brings us to to sci-fi and the role also sci-fi plays in relation to the extinction uh, crisis. And uh, I always remember one of the first uh, sci-fi writers I met was Bruce Sterling. I met him when I was a student in in the early 90s. And he was actually the reason I got my first email address because uh, he said you should be on email. Uh, it was yeah. about 1992? So uh, he made me open a Compuserve account, uh, and of course, Bruce Sterling, you know, wrote a lot about uh, in his cyberpunk kind of writing about yeah, climate, you no, know, and climate change very early on, and uh, uh, of course, um, Kim Stanley Robinson's recent book is such an important milestone in relation to that, uh, in relation to climate and and, and sci-fi. Now, I know that uh, sci-fi plays a big role for both of you, that you have an interest in sci-fi. I mean, Lynn, you have actually developed your own sci-fi already in 2003 with Technomas, these three automats. Uh, you've also created a website actually outside the project related to that. Uh, can you tell, a post, tell us a little bit about sci-fi, uh, your interest in sci-fi, Your you know, Lynn, your early work also with sci-fi, and then, how do you see the relationship today between sci-fi and and uh, and climate emergency? Oh, I
3: I think if you take something that already exists. And focus on that. I mean, I, I think also film is a, for, is a form of public art, particularly if, if you allow it to be seen. Uh, uh, webcams are a form of public art, uh, the, you know, like the Dolly clones, which uh, which I make, which are really nanny cams that can can convey uh, individuals and experience through time and through the internet. Um, but But often what's happening in the time one's living in appear as sci-fi. People don't believe that it's really happening. So much of the script that I made, both for Conceiving Ada, which had two time frames, uh, the present and the past, and, and for Technoless, which dealt with the, the evolution of cyborgs and their emerging with, 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 with humans, were actually going on. And that was part of the conversations and the, the dialogue that I had with scientists or that I read with scientists became the script. So I don't really think that there is sci-fi. I think if we can imagine it, that things can happen. Happen. So things things that are happening with genetic in- engineering right now appear to be like sci-fi. You can't you can't really believe or fathom that these conversions could take place with the identity of anything living. But this is the time that we're in. And I think we have to uh respect and use these possibilities in how we think and how we can uh we can mitigate the uh Uh, the exigencies of of life today so that we have something that's sustainable for our future dreaming of sci-fi. Thank you, Lynn. Sumaya?
1: In in very small ways, I think um, architecture is also a form of sci-fi because it's at its heart, it's propositional and it's future-making. And I, I say that holding a degree of responsibility about what that comes with. Um, because I agree with Lynn that if we can imagine it, it can be, it can become possible. And so in everything we make, we are also writing the future. Uh, but I'm also interested in sci-fi as a medium for opening up dialogue. And I think that fiction is very interesting because it often allows us to talk about things that are too difficult um, to speak about in, in, in very direct or didactic or real terms. And so fiction has always been important to my architectural practice in that speculation allows us to be open, mm-hmm. uh, to talk about, um, as I said, things that are difficult. And you know, I'm thinking about uh, issues around identity, around hybrid, about, around territory, around things that are contested um, and how they can be breached or engaged through fiction. But I also think that thinking propositionally uh, through fiction is really powerful for architecture. And I've I've always been really inspired by um Octavia Butler and by many other sci-fi thinkers and writers, um, in, in how they and how they offer possibilities for thinking through architecture as well.
2: Adele, who are the sci-fi writers who inspire you? <laughs>
1: Uh, Huxley is, is,
3: is one, uh, certainly Octavia Butler, so many, uh, and, uh, it's really hard to, to just list them right now, but, uh, Jules Verne, um, uh, so just so many people just, uh, you know, look, looking, um, looking at, at the meta, I mean, really sci-fi is just a metaphor for where we are on the planet and where we could be, so, uh, you know, it all could be, it, it, any any original thinking could be interpreted as sci-fi. Sci-fi also
2: brings us to uh, my only recurring questions in uh, conversations, which uh, I've asked you both before, but I saw today on the occasion of this book, um, uh, actually book event for 140 artist ideas for planet Earth, Remember Nature, on Second Home, it could be great to ask you this question again, and it's the question about the unrealized project. Um, because, of course, there are many possibilities why a project is unrealized. There are many different unrealized projects. There are projects which are too big to be realized, too small to be realized, too time intense to be to be realized, um, too expensive to be realized, sometimes also um, utopic Uh Sometimes maybe only partially realizable and unrealizable as such dreams, projects. Also, one just has somewhere in the studio, right in a locker. These are the forgotten, unrealized projects. Then, of course, there are the yeah, I would say the the competition entries in public art or in architecture, which are unrealized because one didn't win the competition. That's another category of unrealized projects. Um. Um. And yeah, this list is far from complete. It's just a few of the many different, you know, um, unrealized projects. Then, of course, censorship, uh, projects unrealized because being censored. And as always, Lessing always told me, also self-censorship, projects we might really want to do badly but haven't dared to do. So within this whole realm of the unbuilt roads of the unrealized, I wanted to ask you to tell me about a few of your favorite unrealized projects. <laughs> Lynn, you wanna start?
3: Well, since, since we, we, we did the antibody and the toxicity of water, I think the next one that, that uh, we're gonna be working on is, is, uh, is carbon. And how you how you can erase carbon from the atmosphere, um, but uh, you know I, I really do want to do another uh, sci fi film. You know, maybe with with uh, grandmothers on a spaceship that are looking for a place in the future for uh, the life that they're breeding, a place that uh, uh, can take them away from the uh, the discrimination and evils of where they come from, and the realization of of, uh, of new possibilities for life. So, we need grandmothers on spaceships, I think, to, to, to figure out where we're going.
2: And you already have the script for that movie? or uh,
3: No, I could have it next week, though. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Thank you, Lynn and Sumaya.
1: So, Hans Ulrich, I'm going to keep saying a speculative Joburg archive is one of them. Um, but I'll also just. Uh, perhaps add add a few more on the spot that I haven't I haven't thought through beforehand. I always make this mistake. Um, I think a, a recipe book of some kind, a very a very communal cross geographic archive of recipes from across the world and I think this is an easy unrealized project that we could potentially get going very soon. Um, that becomes almost a map of many different territories and of human and species migrations over time.
2: Very, very last question, I promise. Uh, Rainer Maria Rilke wrote a beautiful little book, which is an advice to a young poet. Uh, So I wanted to ask you both, Lynn and Sumaya, to tell us what would be your advice to... uh, Young artist to a young architect what would be your advice to a to a student in 2021
3: uh believe in yourself uh, don't listen to anybody else keep working and keep your sense of humor and don't throw anything out <laughs>
1: um my advice i think would be to stay soft and sensitive because it is a deep strength. <laughs>
2: Two wonderful answers. Uh, thank you both so, so much, Lynn and Sumaya. Sumaya and Lynn for this amazing conversation and for your amazing contributions to the book. Uh, thank you so much to Second Home and the team of Second Home for hosting uh, tonight's event. If you're interested in exploring more, in knowing more about uh, the 140 artists' ideas for planet Earth, the book is available at the Second Home's independent bookshop called Libreria, both online and also at their shop in East London. Thank you so much.
0: This episode was brought to you as part of Second Home's Creative Collisions podcast. Subscribe to keep up to date with upcoming episodes and head to secondhome.io forward slash culture to see what other events we have coming up. Thanks for listening.